Oakland, California. I'm Michelle Zambrano, and this is We Are The Voices Radio. Voices Radio is pleased to present inspiring poetry readings and edifying conversations recorded this past fall and in spring and summer 2020. The episodes included in this series feature the voices of nationally prominent activists, scholars, poets, and more. We offer these episodes in the hope that they will contribute to our listeners' well-being and self-reflection and will heighten their awareness and move them to action. We Are the Voices is a Mellon Foundation higher education and scholarship in the humanities funded project that forges an alliance between arts, literature, and public humanities. We are housed at Mills College in Oakland, California, which sits on the ancestral and unceded land of the Ohlone people. This land acknowledgement serves as just a starting point for accountability and for actions to support indigenous organizations and change movements. This episode features an electric conversation between four of the most cutting edge thinkers and activists in the field of critical disability. Join us as Mills Professor Kirsten Saxton facilitates a free-flowing discussion between Dr. Gina Kim, Leah Lakshmi Peepsna Samarasina, Dr. Jasbir Poir, and Dr. Sammy Shock as they discuss disability studies, activism, capitalism, arts in the academy, and the role of the body-mind in the time of epidemic. So I'm going to jump in because y'all are not here to hear from me. Um, but when we're thinking about this event, um, could not have imagined a better group of folks to think with and to be able to sort of eavesdrop on their conversation together. Um, to, as they talk about disability, activism, capitalism, um, they're thinking about how to conceptualize disability in terms of precarious populations, state-sanctioned violence. I want to take a moment the it's don't want to have an additive list of the violences that we're all in and adjacent to right now, but a moment to think of um, of the situ- what's happening in South Asia and the situations globally, as well as what's happening locally, wherever you are. Um, these folks offer crip of color critiques of the places that we find ourselves and they help us inform um, where we might go. They're dreaming of justice together and they're imagining a temporal praxis of care, a community backwards, present and forward. Um, you know, Jasper's tweet today really said the whole thing, which is like being beyond excited to be here together with these um, for badass BIPOC critical disability studies scholars and disability justice activists from which whom we learned so much and who we're so excited to be with tonight. And everybody who's here, the problem with this fancy Vimeo thing is I can't see everybody, but I just want to say we see you out there um, on the invisible gallery that we cannot access. Um, so the format of this event, um, we tried to make it in a way that would privilege community and connection and conversation. So rather than have a sort of talking head moment, 
we asked each panelist to provide a question to guide the discussion. And what's gonna, my role is simply gonna be to um, awkwardly pivot like every 10 minutes after we start this, after I do the bios, um, and be like, and now, um, Gina, to your question. So just bear with me um, through that. Um, and we're figuring there's probably like 10 minutes per question roughly. Um, so we have about 45 minutes for discussion. Um, and then the Q&A at the end, if you drop your questions into the chat, um, we will get through as many of them as we can at the end. So what I'm gonna do now is formally um, share the introductions that were shared with us for our speakers, but you should Google all of them because these introductions are not nearly adequate enough for their spectacular phenomenalness. Um, and Josh is gonna drop the bios into the chat for increased accessibility. Also, I'm trying to talk more slowly. I really wanna acknowledge how fast I talk to the interpreters and I, okay, bring it down. Um, so I'm gonna read all four bios and then turn over um, to the first question. So Dr. Jasbir Poir is professor and graduate director of women's and gender studies at Rutgers University, where she has been a faculty member since 2000. Her most recent book is The Right to Maim, Debility, Capacity, Disability, published with Duke in 2017 as part of the series Anima, Critical Race Studies Otherwise, that she co-edits with Mel Chen. Poir is the author of the award-winning Terrorist Assemblage, Homonationalism in Queer Times, published in 2007, which was translated into Spanish and French and was reissued in an expanded version for its 10th anniversary in 2017, and is also working on any number of other astonishingly important projects. Um, Sammy Schalk, um, Dr. Schalk is an associate professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research focuses on disability, race, and gender in contemporary American literature and culture. Dr. Schalk's first book, Body Minds Reimagined, Disability, Race, and Gender in Black Women's Speculative Fiction, also Duke, 2018, explores how Black women writers use non-realist genres to imagine, to reimagine the possibilities and limits of body minds, challenging our understanding of the meanings of disability, race, and gender. Schalk's next project focuses on disability politics and Black activism in the post-civil rights era. She identifies as fat, Black, queer, femme, disabled, cisgendered woman, and can be found on Twitter as Dr. Sammy Schalk and on her website, sammyschalk.com. Leah Peepsia, I'm sorry, just Leah Lakshmi Peepsia Samarasinha, she, they, is a queer, disabled, autistic, non-binary femme writer. And I, I think I just did a name wrong with weird anxiety. I apologize. Educator and disability transformative justice worker. They are the author or co-editor of nine books, including Tongue Breaker, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, and Dirty River, a queer femme of color dreaming her way home. 
She co-edited The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities, and they are the 2020 recipient of the Lambda Foundation's Jean Cordova Prize in Lesbian Queer Nonfiction, recognizing a lifetime of work documenting the complexity of queer experience, and are a 2020 Ford Foundation Disabilities Futures Fellow. I feel like we could just parse that title, the Ford Foundation Disabilities Futures Fellow. Dr. Gina Kim um, is an assistant professor of English and the study of women and gender at Smith College. She teaches and writes about critical disability studies, feminist and queer of color critique and contemporary ethnic literature, American literature. She is currently at work on a book manuscript titled Dreaming of Infrastructure, Crip of Color Imaginaries After the US Welfare State which examines women and queer of color literary production in the afterlife of the 1996 US welfare reform. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Signs, Social Text, Mellis, American Quarterly, Disability Studies Quarterly, the South Atlantic Quarterly, and the Asian American Literary Review. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna turn to Sammy to open us up with our first question. Thank you so very much and please enjoy. All right, I think we all come on camera. Is that how this works? Yay, there we all are. Hey y'all. Um, so yeah, my question is, as the world reopens, what do we keep from the crit practices that we've developed or honed in this last year? What lessons do we carry forward with us? This is Leah, I can go. Um, I'm a light brown skinned, um, middle-aged, non-binary autistic weirdo with brown and pink curly hair on one side of my head, and I'm glad to be here. I was thinking about how to answer this question, and I think my answer is really simple. I think that I never want to hear any abled institution ever say again, it's too hard to be accessible, um, like ever, ever, <laughs> and I'm not, this isn't some kind of brand new or unique criticism. I think that every single disabled person I know feels the same way. Um, it's interesting, I, I went to Mills for my MFA in 2007 to 2009, and I was thinking about what a different time that was. Um, disability justice was just coined as a phrase and a movement building framework in 2005. So it was two years old when I started. And I was a real baby crip in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking about in terms of, you know, being disabled and brown in academia, really tentatively being like, can I, you know, I had a pain flare and I couldn't make it down the 580s a class. And my professor just being like, you have to be in class. There's no way. And I was like, but Skype, because it's 2008, right? And, and this isn't to single out Mills. I mean, most universities have that version of that. Um, you know, fast forward 10 years later, I worked for a year in 2015, 2016, running the Disability Justice, not the Disability Justice Center, the D Center, kind of an unfortunate name, which is the Disabled and Deaf Student Center at UW. And, you know, one thing that we dealt with, which so many disabled folks on campus deal with, was that we were this rare thing. We were a disabled student center. And I had so many students, you know, peep in through the door and be like, um, am I allowed to come in here or do I need a note? 
because I don't want to be viewed as like cheating, right? And that's the way, you know, the gatekeeping of disable of disability, that's one way it happens in academia, right? Is this, you know, very legalistic framework where you have to prove that you're not lying and cheating about being disabled to get special rights, right? Which is completely different than the disability justice perspective of naming and claiming home and claiming identity as disabled and deaf and neurodivergent people and that we are our own authorities. Um, so I wanna keep everything from last year. And I also want to like everything we've invented, everything that we as disabled and neuro weird people invented way before last year. And I think if we're talking academia, I think, you know, a modest proposal would be that we end the ways in which accommodations currently functions, which is to protect the corporate interests of most universities and the liability interests and instead move towards just asking students, workers and faculty what we need to be present and then build basing academia around that. I don't know if I answered the question, but that's what I got for right now. Um, Jasbir, do you wanna go? Or Gina, would you like to go? I'm gonna try and do the passive thing. Um, I'm, I'm happy to go. Um, uh, Leah, thank you for that. I. Um, uh, I did want to also um, kind of acknowledge the land as well that I'm on unceded ancestral Lenape homelands and I wanted to recognize the longstanding significance of these lands for Lenape nations past and present. Um, I'm a middle-aged sick woman with medium brown skin and brown eyes and I'm wearing, uh, I have um, uh, long black hair and I'm wearing a black button-down shirt um, and I have kind of largest uh, silver hoop earrings. Um, I also want to thank the organizers of this panel. Um, thanks Mil Mills, to Mills College, um, to Sheila Lloyd, to um, Kristen Saxon, and to our interpreter, and also to my fellow, fellow panelists. So I'm really honored to be here with all of you. Um, I wanted, uh, you know, uh, with this question, I, I had also um, immediately thought of what Leah was talking about as well, that we've learned for sure um, that the kind of work accommodations that disabled people have been arguing for for so very long are available immediately to those who don't necessarily need them once the, you know, the pandemic is quote unquote over. So there's a real lesson here um, about the kind of institutional instrumentalization of, um, uh, of accommodations and how we have to kind of push back against a bureaucracy um, on the notion of accommodation as something exceptional or burdensome. Um, Leah said this you know, much better than, than I could ever say it, um, the corporate interests of, of the academy. Um, this, the, the thing about the academy, I think, is that um, you know, to kind of pick up again on, on what Leah was talking about is that there's not, um, uh, there's really no room to, um, to grieve. Um, in the academy, there's no room for loss. Um, there's there's just uh, a kind of demand to kind of sweep away everything into this kind of product, you know, the machine of productivity. Um, I was on a panel uh, with um, several people uh, from the Crypt Temporality Special Issue, um, which um, you know, there's great pieces in there, including uh, Sammy and Gina's um, co-edited, uh, co-written piece, which is beautiful. Um, and everyone, everyone on this panel, this was for the Society of um, Disability Studies uh, conference. Everyone was voicing 
discomfort and, and also anger about this narrative that we're returning to normal um, because it's of course just not true. It's not globally true at all, um, as was mentioned already in terms of uh, what's going on in India, which I'll also talk about in a minute. Um, but you know, also the, the discomfort with the demands of productivity that await this quote unquote return, right? Um, and that for so many um, pandemic time um, that's been kind of, um, you know, chanced upon as this novel thing um, that people have had to live through is actually what crypt time has always been. Um, and Alison Kafer had, had ma made this beautiful point about the kind of um, before or an, and after, uh, before the pandemic, the after of the pandemic, these are already um, kind of um, embedded markers of privilege and already kind of marking bodies that are deemed worthy of being cared for um, in that sense. So um, a lot of concern about what it means to um, to go back to, to go back to, to return to normal, particularly in terms of um, teaching demands, campus uh, presence, um, safety issues, all of that stuff. Um, the the last thing I just wanted to say um, is that I think grief and mourning are um, not just in academia, but just typically uh, privatized experiences. There's just really a, a massive um, expectation that these exper that experiences of grief and and mourning um, will be privatized. Um, I, as with so many other people right now, have been experiencing through family and friends um, in India, and also through supporting friends here who have family there. This kind of dissonance um, between this. Uh, you know, kind of like a jubilation around this return to to a kind of post-pandemic life and um, here, and then, you know, what's what's actually happening in India right now, which is just a kind of, the, the scale of which is just kind of um, unbelievable and, and tragic and really unknown, uh, and we won't know for a while. So, you know, that dissonance makes uh, grieving and mourning um, really difficult in this context of this, you know, um, expectation that things are returning to normal. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I think the one of the most important things about mourning is to kind of resist these demands to privatize grief, um, which means these kinds of rituals of collective mourning have to, you know, ground us, um, kind of ground us in our grief and, and ground grief as an ines inescapable part of what it means to be human. Um, and it's not something that, you know, can be denied or compartmentalized. So even in this panel that I was on, um, you know, there was uh, a kind of surging of people saying, you know, I'm not okay. Um, and so, the, you know, there's a question about like, where is there space to say, I'm not okay? Um, as there was, you know, in this in this plenary where we, everyone wound up acknowledging the kind of not okayness that we were dealing with, um, and and in in community that was supportive. Um, uh, so where is it okay to say I'm not okay? Um, in the last couple of weeks, Twitter has become this repository of grief. Um, people have been posting beautiful tributes to relatives and friends who have departed. Um, the scale, again, the scale of what's happening in India is, is just kind of inconceivable on some level. Um, and at the same time, you know, and, and, and so I'm, I'm thinking about this kind of collective um, 
taking up of space around grief and mourning and a refusal to pretend that what's happening is not happening and, and a demand and a kind of insistence on sharing. Um, at, you know, at the same time, Twitter has been blocking accounts and, and deleting tweets, um, not only of posts and, uh, and accounts that are critical of the Indian government or the Modi government, but also in the last couple of weeks, any reporting on the ethnic cleansing that's going on in Sheikh Jarrah right now in Jerusalem, um, where settlers have been raiding uh, Palestinian homes. So this is just to say that our, um, you know, our efforts at collective mourning and grieving have to constantly um, uh, uh, kind of outrun the, the kind of corporate corporatization of these spaces. Um, and I will pass it to Gina, I think. Thank you. Um... So I am uh, zooming in um, from Northampton, Massachusetts, which is on um, Pakumtuk and Nipmuc ancestral lands. Um, I am an East Asian woman. I have glasses, um, white chain earrings, and a puffy pink dress. Um, and so I think, yeah, when I first got the questions, I remember Sammy, your second question was about um, how do we mourn in pandemic times, especially as um, disabled people, which I feel like Jasbir's answer just like beautifully addressed, thinking about how grieving in public is so important <laughs> during this moment, um, refusing the privatization of grief. Um, and I mean, I guess thinking about how to grieve and mourn that ways of grieving and mourning that aren't rooted in like physically being with other people, right? Which is how, um, you know, grieving outside of the context of sort of traditional funeral rites, right? Um, collective grief um, that is taking place without actually being able to physically touch and hug people, right? Which feels so important to the process. And um, I will say that uh, a couple of the people on the panel know about this, but, um, you know, before the pandemic, I lost a very dear friend of mine. She's my best friend um, for almost two decades. And um, because of complicated reasons I won't get into here, um, my mourning for her had been disrupted in some significant ways, right? Like I wasn't, we weren't able to sort of gather in this kind of traditional way at a funeral, right, with her body um, physically present. So I feel like prior to the pandemic, I was trying to think about ways of grieving and mourning that weren't reliant on that traditional funeral, right? Um, and I guess I had been thinking a lot about legacy, right, and what legacy means. And um, I guess what it means even for a person to be gone, right? Um, thinking about legacy beyond the textual record, right? Beyond genealogy, which I feel like is how we usually think of it, right? And um, just thinking about ways to honor our ancestors that are about sort of like embodying the qualities that they brought into our collective worlds. Right. And I'm thinking about, you know, we lost and I, I feel like I never I never personally met Stacey Milburn, but I felt like 
I knew her in some way just because she had so deeply touched my own web, right? So then her legacy makes me think about what does it mean to actually know someone in a particular way. Um, but just thinking about hashtag Stacy taught us, right? Um, that being such an important legacy, all the writing she left behind, but also I'm sure like with her loved ones, um, the ways in which she was an incredible friend, right? Um, and with my own loss, um, one way, one of the ways in which I tried to sort of embody my friend's legacy is by enacting some of the qualities that were so precious to me. Like she was very good at gift giving and I am not so great at that. So um, as a way of honoring her, one thing I've tried to do is put much more thought and effort into the gifts I give to people, right? Um, so I think that if anything, um, the pandemic has forced me to think in more complicated ways around what legacy and grief are, right? And um, yeah, yeah, just refusing to hide my grief away, right? And and being big in public with it, um, yeah. Can I be a shitty panelist and speak a little bit about grief? Because I realize I just jumped right into like, and like, I actually want to talk about it a little bit. Totally, totally. Okay? and you're next, you're next anyway, so you can okay. just like pivot on that and go. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say thank you to Jessica and Gina for what you just, you know, just how real you both were about grief. And I have some thoughts too. I mean, I was really close with Stacy for 11 years and I was one of the people who planned her memorial. And, you know, it's really, I mean, something I've been, I wrote the other day is that to be a disabled person of color who chooses to love other disabled people of color means that you're going to watch people you love die. And you're actually going to watch them be murdered by the state and by the medical industrial complex because I believe that's what happened with Stacey. Her cancer treatment was delayed for a year because Stanford couldn't figure out how to do a surgery on someone with a wheelchair and a bin. And, you know, I've just been thinking a lot about um, just crip grieving and mourning and how we don't, you know, we're not seen as human and we're not seen as people with communities and we're definitely not seen as people who mourn each other. But there's so much complicated stuff that's so important going on in crypt communities always. But I think especially in the past year with the loss of people like Stacy, Mel Baggs, um, Carrie Ann Lucas, um, so many other people, um, you know, people who are known in community, you know, who are in that particular tension of other disabled people know those people, but you know, to the able world, they're like, what? And also to people who weren't known as disabled writers or activists or scholars who were like everyday people. Um, just with the public private tension, I'm thinking that with Stacy, because it was, she died on May 19th, she was 2020 on her 33rd birthday. Um, and we joke that, you know, she taught us how to organize an accessible COVID safe memorial in three days, which we all were losing it, but we did. And, you know, people will remember we had the, digital billboard with her face on it that was driving around Lake Merritt and the, you know, the, the deaf and deaf blind Zoom room and all of the things. 
And it really was important because Stacy was so rooted in the South in North Carolina and so rooted in Oakland, but she lived and died her last years in Oakland. It was so important to have that public celebration of her life. And I also know that for a lot of us who knew her as a friend and a person, I just was left afterwards where I was like, where's the place where I get to go and cry and just be a mess and not be like managing the hashtag, you know? So I'm thinking about that. And also something I'm thinking a lot about is, you know, for so many of us, um, the numbers of people we've lost is staggering. And I'm thinking of folks in India, I'm thinking of folks throughout the global South, I'm thinking of folks in Turtle Island who've lost multiple, multiple people. Um, my therapist was like, you lost, the, she was talking to me and she's like, in the past year you lost Stacy, you're dead. And my friend Lucia Leandro Jimeno died three weeks ago on April 19th, actually. And I think a lot about, I mean, we've, a lot of our communities have been through massive loss and genocide before. And I'm still sitting with the question of how do we hold it when it's so big? What happens to us? And I think collective mourning, um, non-privatizing grief, all of those things make sense. I also really am just like, what's gonna happen to our spirits? Um, especially I know so many people who've coped by kind of going into deep freeze. And some of us in some areas of the world are starting to be able to come out of it a little bit. Like I know in Seattle, Duwamish territories where I am, we have a pretty good vaccine rollout and we have pretty good Medicaid. So we're something like 50% vaccinated in, in Seattle and it's much more normal and safe to hug each other. And when LL died, we were able to have an outdoor memorial for him and ceremony, which meant everything and which was so different than with Stacey where we never saw her body, you know? Um, so there's that, but I also am really thinking about where rage comes in because after LL died, he's someone who was a fat Afro-Latino trans person who was multiply disabled, uh, was in late stage renal failure, but got COVID last year, had a stroke, had all of this shit, but literally was murdered because he was told by his doctors that he was too fat to get a kidney, right? And a lot of us were sitting there being like, what do we do? And my friend Bear, who you know is a mixed, you know, trans, fat, disabled organizer, is like, we've been organizing as fat people since the 80s against this kind of medical murder, but it still happens. And I'm just sitting there like, a lot of us were sitting there in kind of crip corner being like, what do we do to make them stop killing us? And I have a lot of thoughts about, there's the people who are dying now and those of us who are surviving them. And then what's gonna happen when people are long-term disabled, you know, not when, but people are long-term disabled now from long COVID. What happens to people who die a year or two after COVID of COVID adjacent or related deaths? You know, what happens to our spirits and how do we really channel the rage to try and make changes in the medical industrial complex once and for all, but also to really hold space. Like I, I want a war memorial for us. I want reparation payouts. I want a lot of things. I want justice. And I also want a space where we can cry and wail with each other for years, which is what we might need to do. Thanks for letting me have a little more time. I really appreciate it. I think Leah, you're next and it actually goes pretty, quickly it goes into your question in a nice oh, thank way thank you for being a good moderate okay so my question is what are our visions of freedom for a disability justice future and present and how are we working to bring them into being um, in community and in academia what's hard what's amazing i always like to ask six questions um i can pick somebody and also i can just throw it out um sami do you want to start actually and if you don't like it's fine yeah, sure. I'll start. Um, 
Yeah, I'm just going to start with like, I think my own community, you know, the the last year being so stuck in one place has not been my, my like typical experience. So I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of my local community. Um, and I think one thing is like, I want a, a vision of disability justice that's really inclusive of folks with psych disabilities. Um, a lot of our organizing work, especially um, getting cops out of schools here in Madison and trying to get cops out of everywhere, but <laughs> particularly schools, um, revolved around like disabled students of color, particularly with mental and psychiatric disabilities. Um, and so I want us to have a vision. And right now it just feels like so many folks are like social workers. And that's not, that's not that either. Um, I want like, I want a world where all of us have more skills for holding people in crisis, um, particularly in terms of mental health, but just like for more of us to have those skills, um, Leah, I mean, I think about your book often, but I'm particularly in this moment thinking about femme labor, right? That it falls to, in my community, disabled femmes to do this work. Um, and so I want, that's the thing that's standing out for me right now is that I want a disability justice future where more of us have the skills so that there are lots of us to do the supporting and not just a few. Yeah. Um, I'll pass it to Gina. Okay, that was amazing. I, Leah, I also think a lot about and with, um, and with your book. Um, and, you know, I feel like a lot of what you were saying um, when you were talking about wanting, um, a memorial, wanting a place to cry, wanting, um, wanting actual robust infrastructures of care, I think. Um, and also I think something that I've learned thinking with your book is, and I think I've said this before when we've been on a panel together, but being really specific about what we mean by care, right? Um, because I think that, you know, I, I mean, I feel really um, uh, hopeful about the fact that a lot more people are talking about care these days as, you know, our nation has very eroded, non-existent infrastructures of care. Clearly, if anything, I mean, disabled people have already known that and now more people know that, right? Um, but I think that sometimes care gets talked about like it's just some unqu an unqualified good, right? Where, you know, um, as disabled people know, it's often used as a mechanism of violence and control, right? Um, care can be paternalistic. Um, state care is always rooted in surveillance, right? Um, and so some, some things that I have taken away from your book are about how um, care needs to be dictated by the vulnerable folks at the center of it, right? Care needs to be dictated by and through the needs of disabled people, right? And I think, Sammy, your answer also clarifies for me um, the fact that we have to be really um, 
we have to be, we have to really interrogate who's doing the care work, right? Um, because I have also seen this same phenomenon happen, right? That the care work in um, mutual aid networks often falls to um, femmes, femmes of color, disabled femmes, right? Like, and it's sort of, and, and we see the same kind of like gendered ideas of care being propagated, like, oh, this is just, you're just naturally good at this. This is like an innate essential skill. And it's like, actually, like we had to learn these skills. And actually, I mean, I don't know if I'm that good at it personally, I'm still learning it, right? Um, so I guess for me, yeah, disability justice present and future would be more, much more robust infrastructures of care so that people could survive, be cared for and supported at bigger and bigger scales, right? Um, and also I think, disability justice forces us to be very specific about what care means, right? And what actually radical practices of care look like, right? That care isn't just a thing we can say and we all know what that means and we all know how to practice it, um, right? So I think that, that that's kind of what's what's coming up for me, yeah. Um, Jess Beer. Um, well, thanks, thanks to all of you for those really moving and impactful um, thoughts that you've shared. I, uh, when I, when I hear um, and and think about all the ways in which we take up um, these, you know, the the work of care, um, and are kind of left also with the work of care um, in terms of our own kind of positionalities and and this, you know, do you know what you're talking about? This kind of naturalization of of who we're supposed to be. You know, it I I kind of I it it makes me really angry um, to see uh, the the way the way that states just completely um, abdicate their responsibility for any kind of care whatsoever. So um, I'm always thinking about what it would mean to have universal health care that actually matters, you know, and that actually works in a way um, where people feel like they're getting what they need and they're getting uh, the kind of um, support that they need. Um, and, I, and I thought a lot about this too, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this kind of tension between, um, you know, taking up all this care work that the state should be doing on one hand and how angering that is um, and how infuriating that is. And then on the other hand saying, fuck the state, we're not doing this. Uh, we don't need you, we can't afford to need you, we have to figure out these other ways. So this is the kind of, um, you know, the tension that I'm always uh, struggling with, I think, as someone who believes in like a socialist state, right, like that that's still possible, or that that we should still have that. Um, I wanted to uh, both, uh, you know, honor um, Leandro's passing, uh, who was somebody that I also worked with at the Audrey Lord Project, um, and also Christina Crosby, um, who left us too in, in January. And that was a very, um, you know, another experience of uh, figuring out how to collectively mourn without being able to be physically present, which I think is such an important um, issue that you're all that you're all raising, right? This is a kind of 
um, reality, not just of the pandemic, but of, of times to come and also of this kind of um, relationship that we have to people in other places um, who are also suffering, right? Um, when I think about freedom and disability justice, I do think about, um, about sins um, invalid and the statement of solidarity that they put out um, with Palestine. So that statement um, to exist is to resist. Uh, disability justice means resisting together from solitary cells to open our prisons. Um, I hold this vision of disability justice and, and prison abolition um, as a kind of anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist solidarity formation, very, very close to me. Um, I've, and, and, and along with that, I, you know, I've uh, been inspired by um, Liat Ben Mush's book on decarcerating disability um, uh, and her formulation of um, carceral uh, locales, so prisons and psychiatric hospitals. Um, for me, uh, the, the, the second part of this question was like, what, you know, what are we doing to bring some of these um, uh, visions of freedom into into being, um, and both in community and academia. And I and um, you know one of the things I had to let go of this year, and it's and it was frightening at first, but turns out you know it has turned out to be so incredibly um, uh, buoying. Is that I was working on a project in in uh, the refugee camps in Palestine. Um, talking to Palestinians with disabilities who live in the camps and their experiences of kind of, um, you know, generational trauma um, in relation to the intifadas. And I had deliberately set up a research project where I wasn't uh, talking to anyone who had access to connectivity. Uh, so I couldn't just Skype with people when I got home. And so that, and this is a project I started 2018. I was supposed to go back to, to Palestine last summer. And of course I couldn't. And so I had to kind of start rethinking this project and, and it's meant a real shift to collaborative uh, work, um, you know, in a way that I just, I never want to do. I never want to write a book ever again. I just want to keep kind of producing um, I don't even like that word producing. I just want to keep in in kind of collaborative community in academia as much as I can um, and, and across um, through, you know, different communities, not just within academia. Anyway, this is a, a long way of saying that Liat and I are, are starting to think together about a, a kind of forum on decarcerating disability where um, the, the prison abolition and disability justice Formation is a kind of anti-imperialist, internationalist understanding of how we can think about um, not global north and global south as these kind of oppositional or disconnected um, or you know self and other frames, um, but actually really interrelational. So I'm really excited about the project and hope to you know be able to share more about it in the future um, with Leah. But this this thing about um, decarcerating disability um, and thinking about, um, you know, the ways in which um, blockades are a form of incarceration, um, the way the occupation is a form of incarceration, the way checkpoints operate, um, all of these things as um, disabling structures that um, can, you know, uh, cha and challenging them challenges us to um, think about, um, you know, challenges uh, afford, affords for all of us ways of, of 
um, embracing livable lives for dis disabled people, right? Um, instead of being constantly under attack, constantly dealing with state violence, constantly um, layering, you know, the experiences of state violence and of militarized violence on top of each other um, over generations, over the same body across, you know, um, encounters. So that's um, that's one of the one of the collaborations that I'm really excited about. I wanted to also just give a, a quick shout out to another project that I'm involved with, which is called Disability Under Siege, um, which I've talked about to some of you before, um, which focuses on uh, disability in Palestine and Jordan and Lebanon. Um, and it's really about thinking about what disability is in conflict zones um, and in war and in places that live under constant siege. Um, uh, and this is, uh, um, uh, it's also a project that's trying to put uh, the notion of disability itself under siege. It's a, a way of thinking about decolonizing um, disability and to thinking about what kinds of epistemological shifts happen when you're kind of centering um, uh, disability from uh, that's ha that's happening uh, prolifically in, in a, a location where there's a kind of permanent war going on. So there's a lot of um, great um, collaborations across, uh, you know, across regions happening in that project as well. Um, and so that's an, that's another thing that I, I think is, um, uh, you know, part part of this thing about um, what is it to to think about disability justice and anti-imperialism. Um, they produced a, a report called The Impact of COVID on Disabled People in Low and Middle Income Countries. And um, it's really a kind of inspiring report because they've really started to gather together all of this information that has otherwise um, been unavailable or uncollected um, so that we can you know, connect uh, with things that are happening elsewhere. That's this is my head is I'm gonna have to rewatch this whole thing like 20 times. Um, so Gina, would you mind picking up with your questions next? Yes. Um, so I just want to give some context for my question first. So I, I actually want to um, give a shout out slash citation to um, Dr. Patricia Nguyen, who's at Northwestern University, um, who asked uh, me and Hill Malatino this question in a recent um, panel on care work we were on together. Um, and it really, I don't know, I found this question to be really, it just expanded my thinking so much. And I, I was just so excited about it that I wanted to bring it to this group of people as well. But I, I just wanted to make it clear that I did not think of this, right? Um, so she asked, she asked us, um, so how do you see your work as a part of a genealogy of care? Um, and then I added um, present network of care. Um, so who are your care ancestors um, and luminaries? Um, how did you learn about the care practices you hold today? Um, and then building from this genealogy, um, how have you received or practiced care during the pandemic um, or in general, if you'd prefer that as well? Um, and how would you connect these practices to disability justice politics? And I'm gonna call on Sammy. 
That was so many things, Gina. I'm going to take just like a couple of those things. <laughs> um, so thinking about a genealogy of care. Yeah. In my personal life, I think about when I was 14 years old, my mom signed me up for a creative writing camp at this place called Women Writing for a Change in Cincinnati. And I was like 14 and in Catholic school. And I went to this place where they were like talking about menstruation and bodies and like sitting in a circle and passing crystal stones for like talking stones. And I was like, what is going on? But that space like transformed my life. And so I think of um, Mary Pierce Brosner, P-I-E-R-C-E-B-R-O-M-S-E-R. She's the founder and just like the many teachers that I had. I ended up taking classes there all through high school. And then I became like a little teacher's aide there. And then eventually I went through their facilitator training program and just did the whole thing. Um, And so that for me is um, the first time that I learned about care where they were like, we always have food at our events. We always have, you know, quiet space. We have moments of just like sitting quietly or writing quietly. Um, When you share your work, like there's a chime between each person rather than clapping so that like if someone reads something really heavy, Applause doesn't feel right, but you want to acknowledge what was just shared. Um, Just all these practices that, you know, years later, I realized were so much about caring for each other and listening to one another. When you ask for feedback, you had, had to ask for very specific kinds of feedback that you wanted. And then you only gave that feedback to people, right? So that's like my first experience of feeling very cared for in my words in particular. And for me, as someone who writes, that's super important. Um, But then in a professional sense, I mean, the Society for Disability Studies changed my life. Um, I had never been in a disability community space before I went to that conference. And to see people, and not just any people, but people whose work I admired, um, like sitting on a floor or lying down in the middle of a presentation that I was like, we're allowed to just like lay down with eyes closed and listen. And that's fine. No one's like looking at you weird or put your feet up. And it changed my world, the way that people checked in on me in that professional space. And that in the professional space, I always felt like that was the space you had to hide what was happening with your body, mind the most, you know, um, So yeah, coming into disability studies community, but particularly the Society for Disability Studies for me. So I think about Margaret Price um, and Eli Clare in particular as two people that really guided me into how to be cared for, um, how to ask people what they need. And if they don't know what they need, offer them a bunch of different things to be like, what if this would help? And this would help. And just, um, yeah, those are folks that are in my like care legacy. Um, and let me see, I'm going to like read it from the email to see what else you asked. Hmm. Oh, care during the pandemic. I just want to say that as a person who lives alone, Lockdown was 
really hard, really, really hard. I bought a lot of plants. It's not the same as people. Um, and for me, the people that checked in on me regularly um, made just a huge difference because there were times that, you know, I was like, if I die in my house, will anyone know? Will anyone notice? How long will it take for someone to notice? So having people that regularly checked in on me, that was a care practice that, um, was really important and in some ways simple, but not simple. Like you have to think and do that and, and be prepared for what happens if that person doesn't respond and like what you're going to do. Um, so yeah, those are my, the people in my legacy and my genealogy or that I'm in their legacy and some of the things that were important for me in this last year. Um, I'll pass it to Leah. Thanks. Um, I have, a, I love the, I love the idea of care lineages. Thank you for that. Um, I'm actually, there's a lot of people, I feel pretty rich in care lineages, which is really lucky and also not accidental. It's like, a, it's a byproduct of, you know, a lot of invisibilized disabled organizing and world making by ordinary nobody loser disabled people. But I want to lift up two. And interestingly, they're both Mizrahi queer um, femmes. Um, so Lilith Finkler, who's somebody I talk about a lot, who is a Moroccan Jewish or Libyan Jewish actually, um, working poor, mad and psychiatric survivor organizer. When I was 22 years old and living in Toronto and very crazy and very undocumented and starving to death and very early chronically ill and pretty much with no social capital, but involved in prison justice. You know, I'd come to Toronto as an abolitionist and to do prison justice work with, you know, my lover at the time and friends. And then I got really sick and I got abandoned by a lot of that community. But the thing about Toronto in the late nineties was that the prison justice abolitionist and psychiatric survivor movements were like this, right? And something that me and my friend and comrade, the newly minted Dr. Cyrus Marcus Ware, as of yesterday, um, talked about recently, was he was like, we were doing DJ before it was DJ as like black and brown, really crazy, sick prison abolitionists in the 90s. And I was like, yeah, we, you know, we didn't have the term, but that's what it was. Um, so Lilith was somebody who organized, um, she was a legal worker um, for mad people at the local legal clinic in Parkdale, which is where a lot of mad folks um, who got out of the bin ended up moving to because at the time it was a very, you could get a room in a boarding house and it was very affordable. She started what she called Psychiatric Survivor Pride Day which was really different than some of the kind of more whitewashed disability pride marches that have you know happened more recently. And she just showed me something that I think is a really prime quality of disability justice organizing, which is that it's about rights and it's about food, you know, as Sami also said. And it's also about, you've got to shoot the shit and build trust with people um, who have been told all of our lives that we are always going to be patients. We don't have the capacity to be leaders or have any good thoughts or ideas. So, you know, there's this one donut shop where everybody on a day pass from Queen Street Mental Health would go hang out with their allowance and she would just go there and just hang out and be like a nuts brown woman and shoot the shit and then give people flyers. And every meeting we had, it was all of these poor working class, pretty much all black or brown, a couple of poor white nuts. And we were organizing together and there was always food and there was always tokens. And 
I was walking two miles each way to the meeting because I was really, I was, you know, I had like $37 in a yogurt container and I was really embarrassed about being poor, which is normal. And she, when she found that out, she just gave me a whole roll of, of tokens. And she was like, just take these. And I was like, this is gonna last me two months. And she was like, I know, take the tokens. And, you know, there was no gatekeeping and there was love. You know, there was her as a brown mad, you know, femme who is working class loving me as a 22 year old. And, you know, she found me cash gigs when I was waiting for my work visa to, came through, uh, to come through. She never said I was too much. And that's disabled love right there. And the second person I wanna shout out and I'll briefly talk about care um, during the pandemic is Billy Rain, who's another completely, um, doesn't get enough credit for helping found the movement, but Billy is a Mizrahi survivor and mad and disabled organizer and they founded Sick and Disabled Queers, which in like the glory days of Facebook groups um, really was a hotspot for so many disabled black and brown people who were at home in their beds, um, you know, and I, there's a lot I could say about Billy's organizing, but I want to say that they really, they really modeled a space that was like, we all matter here. Nobody is the star crip and you're just some little guy in Cincinnati. Everybody has shit that matters. Everyone has stuff to contribute. This is a horizontal space that also was very much about like, oh yeah, you need a Cymbalta? Great. Somebody have an extra one? Mail it to this person. But also with really great boundaries where they... You know, they really modeled how to be a disabled person who didn't kick people out the door the first time someone fucked up or said the wrong thing. And there wasn't this sense of like, you can only be a crip if you're a good crip who never gets it wrong, but who also was just like, hey dude, that's racist, no. You know, just was very, just matter of factly like, you know, being, being against disposability politics in practice does not mean it's a fucking free for all. And actually we're gonna to continue to censor BIPOC people. We're gonna to continue to call out bullshit. We're also gonna name when we don't know how to answer something, but we're gonna see how we can figure it out together. And real quick, last thing um, about care during the pandemic. I just wanna say that something I always wanna lift up is that the ways that disabled people do care is different. Um, so yeah, I've gotten a lot of soup and I brought a lot of soup to folks and I've sent a lot of memes over the phone and checked in on people. And that's really important. And I wanna say that's come out, like in my home in South Seattle, that's come out of the disabled survival networks we've built over the last three years of wildfire emergencies, right? Like we're doing disabled climate survival work and we were able to take that relationship and trust building and network building and resource sharing practice into the pandemic, right? And the other thing I want to say is that care is not just soup. It's also, I want to lift up that the massive amount of work that disabled people did to end care rationing, as it was proposed legally in so many states, that's care. What the Nobody is Disposable Coalition did, what Alice Wong did with High Risk California, right? That is shit that is care and practice that is not bringing someone a cup of soup or a pie, but it has saved people from being murdered by the state. It's not perfect, but I want to say that organizing also is deep disabled care because it means that we are fighting for our lives to be able to continue. Um, We're going to pivot on that perfectly because I'm like, yes, so you guys, we clearly need another hour, but we have 10 minutes. That's with our 10 minutes extra. So Jasbir, if you could say your question as a way to talk, no, it's perfect. And sort of talk about maybe you could pivot an answer and your question, which seemed very related to me. <laughs> sure, sure, I can pivot. Um, I just wanted to, um, to hail uh, Toronto in the late 90s. Um, 
because I was there for Desh Pradesh. Uh, so many, yeah, so great. It was really a special, it was really a special time. Um, I, so I answered this question um, actually thinking um, kind of more about spiritual um, work and the kind of faith community that I grew up in. Um, so I've been uh, watching really with renewed interest in this kind of utopian idea of Lunger, which is part of what's happening at the farmers protests in India, which is this kind of, and so this is about food, of course, again, um, but it is this uh, communal praxis of like cooking and, and uh, feeding each other and eating together. And this is a practice that I grew up with in my um, Sikh community in, in New Jersey. And this is a um, Lunger is like a, a you know, a, a kind of central tenet of, of Sikhism. It's an anti-caste practice, um, which includes um, uh, the caste of, of women as well. And it's a, a kind of conviviality that challenges caste uh, inequalities. It, it challenges gender inequalities. Um, and so Lunger has become like part of the sustainability of the protests, right? It's, it's part of what allows people to come and to stay. Um, and it also kind of extends out to the communities around these protest sites. Um, this has been incredibly inspiring. So, so you know, these, these are um, forms of care and social organization that are feeding thousands of, tens of thousands of protesters every day and also as neighboring um, communities. I guess I, I never thought about it as a form of mutual aid, but I guess you could think about it as mutual aid. It's not charity. It's not a form of pooling resources. Um, it's not crisis intervention, although sometimes it's crucial um, during a crisis. But I really think of um, this practice as a mode of envisioning um, you know, more egalitarian forms of communalizing um, that are affective, they're corporeal, um, they're ecological. Um, and so this is a kind of theological um, philosophy and also a conceptual space. It was really amazing to see um, Sikh Gurdwaras uh, bring Lunger to the Black Lives Matter protests last summer um, and, to, and, and you know, um, offer food, offer sustenance. Um, um, I was also thinking about Hersha Walia, who's, you know, the author, as I'm sure you know, of, of that brilliant, her brilliant book, Border and Rule. She once tweeted, everything I know about socialism, I learned in a longer hall. Um, and I kind of feel the same way. This is a kind of utopian horizon that's abolishing caste, it's abolishing gender. And I think of it as um, a kind of congregation that dissolves forms of social hierarchy that keep us um, from caring about each other. And you know, building congregation uh, is through longer is is about not discriminating around gender, disability, race, sexuality. So I do think of longer as connected to a kind of disability justice ethos. Um, and you know, now we're seeing that ethos in motion with Sikh communities setting up oxygen refilling stations in India, opening the gurdwaras for shelter, providing longer for those who are waiting for medical care. Um, and so for me, the, the congregation, um, which is, is known as Sangit in, in Sanskrit, is always ask, about asking this question, like, what is our responsibility to people that we don't know? Um, and that we is always a kind of provisional we, of course. But I do think I carry this question with me because of, because of that upbringing. Um, I also just wanted to say, 
that during this time, um, my relationship with my dog has been so very important. And Sammy, I, I think I've noticed your cat kind of peeking, <laughs> peeking up, cat ears peeking up. So I, I also wanted to say that, and, and also Sammy, you brought up your plants, that the interspecies care has been so, so incredibly important. Um, and my relationship with my dog has just become a, a, a kind of um, transcendent uh, form of communalism and, and that's been shared you know across um, other people as well if if we couldn't touch each other we could at least touch my dog you know like each of us so um uh with that i would just say uh i will i'll pose my question i did want to preface it or contextualize it a little bit um how does disability justice organizing change not only what activism is but what protest is where it is um, and also who is there um, and I'd love to hear about what kinds of roles we were playing um, in all sorts of different kinds of organizing and activism. Um, in particular, uh, those forms that complicate or decenter street protest. And, you know, this comes from a place of being um, kind of challenged and confused about what to do about mass street protests and the ways in which they are. Um, uh, rarely accessible um, in, in, in a kind of broader sense. Um, I have been um, a part of security team of the Trans Day of Action March in New York City uh, that's hosted by the Audrey Lord Project every year um, for many years. And this is always um, a space where disabled people are up front and they're setting the pace and they're setting, setting the ordering of the march. Um, and there's wellness stations set up um, along the route and then there's also, you know, the fuck the police protests that happened um, last fall, or at, sorry, the fall of 2019, where there really wasn't any thought to accessibility and safety and care. Um, there was an instruction to white protesters to stay on the outer edges of the crowd so as to protect BIPOC protesters from uh, the police and from arrest. Um, there was one protest where I was trying to keep pace um, and a group of white protesters with a banner came up behind me and nearly trampled me while they were yelling, you know, we take care of us, right? Um, and so, and, and ironically, these protests were about access to subways, right? Um, economic access, but also infrastructural because they were launched in response to the increase of police um, in, the, in the transit system. So I'm always struck by these representations as well as expectations of protest as one of intense physicality and speed. Um, and I'm really eager to rethink um, you know, this in relation to, to all of us who do um, care work um, that you know, in ways we, where we both support um, street protests, but also create uh, a kind of diffusion of those protests um, I also just, I wanted to mention the, um, the bed activism work by Akemi Nishida because I find it very inspiring and amazing. And then I also just, I, you know, even as I want to kind of um, ask about the re-spatialization of, of protest or different spaces, I also do think about all of the pictures I've seen and stories I've heard of disabled Palestinians often in wheelchairs at the front lines of protest in confrontation with the IDF. Um, and in um, the kind of quotidian resistances enacted by Palestinians with disabilities every day and encounters with checkpoints with settlers, with military forces. So, so sorry for the on and on about the question, but that's that was the motivation behind the question. Thanks. Um, and I'll pass it to Gina. So I actually wanted to hear Sammy talk a little bit about her um, amazing work that she did. 
uh, last summer. I know we're running short on time, so um, am I allowed to do this? Can I pass the baton to Sammy? Sammy, would you accept the baton? Sure. I'm just going to like rapid fire say a bunch of things that we did that I think helped with accessibility. So one was like we did a couple of car caravan protests. We shut down a highway with our cars. Um, So you didn't have to walk. If you had cars or you get in a car, you could do that. It was also very COVID safe. Um, We also had folks that were on like communications and on listening to the police like whatever their radio broadcast thing um who were at home we had people who were like the check-in force so they stayed awake until everyone was home they made sure every single person was home and that's what they did they were at home staying awake but checking in on all the people um i did a lot of food deliveries um so i did a lot of just like providing food in a stationary place um rather than moving so those are some things that we did that um increased the accessibility and I think another thing on just a purely social level is like recognizing the people that were doing that background work, right? Like really naming like our eye in the sky, like all those people, all of that, nothing could happen without all those people. So really recognizing the various ways and the many structures that have to be in place to do safe mass street protests, right? And that doesn't just mean the people who are actually in the street marching. Yeah. I can jump in. I mean, I just want to lift up the disabled people have been protesting for years and nothing has to be the way able people think a march has to be. I mean, I'm thinking of everything from the section 504 sit-in where you had deaf people using ASL to, to communicate because the cops didn't know what it was, right? To, um, you know, the Power to Live um, coalition when they shut down PG&E last year um, after the power shutoffs during the wildfires, or sorry, two years ago, where I remember Stacey was like, girl, we had beds outside the PG&E headquarters. We had beds, we had ASL, we had ESL, we had food. Everyone was laying down. Um, and the cops didn't know what to do with that because they were used to, you know, ye olde regular protests. They were like, there's a bunch of cripples and beds and power chairs who have like shut down all the exits and entrances. We're not sure what to do with this. Um, some things, I wrote this piece called Cripping the Resistance last year because to be honest, I mean, I'm in Seattle, CHOP was here. You know, we took over 16 square blocks in a police headquarters, which just brought down its 12 foot high cement walls yesterday um, because it was bad PR. And I wrote a thing where I was like, I'm months away from getting vaccinated. Even with masks, I don't feel comfortable being out in public. But we started brainstorming and we were like, you know, every time, like all the cops are at CHOP every night. So they're not anywhere else. So why don't we look like useless cripples and do some shit while the cops are over there? And, you know, there was so much police scanner activism going on where people were listening to scanners and being like, they're over here, they're over here, here's where they are. So it was pretty easy to do banner drops as a bunch of helpless cripples who obviously could be doing nothing, for example. Um, I think about, I want to lift up Carrie Ann Lucas and um, who, for people who don't know, was an amazing queer, fat, Latinx, disabled organizer and lawyer and parent. And um, during her, the sit-in that she was a part of um, to save Medicaid in the ADA um, in Colorado, she pulled the wire that she controlled her parachair um, without. And she was like, yeah, you can Google it to the cops. And she's like, I blocked down. She's like, I use my body and my wheelchair as a barricade. Um, I think it's really important to talk about access in traditional forms of protest. And I also think it's equally important to not be fitting disabled people into abled spaces, but to really look at what we create with the power and creativity of our disabled bodies and minds. 
So we have 15 minutes left. Um, and I think, um, and we have some questions. So if it's, this is one of those fake questions. I was like, if it's okay with you, I'm going to pose the questions, but I'm totally going to pose the questions unless you like yell at me. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to put them out there and we're not going to get through all of the questions. I just want to say, um, so I'll try to sort of stick them together if that's all right and let people bounce. And I'm going to just let our, your amazing panelists manage yourselves, right? Like just sort of jump in where you fit in. Um, so I, I want to start with one um, that feels the most personal, actually, um, by someone named Maya, who asked if you could talk about, um, if you could share your thoughts on people with invisible disabilities, because they themselves have a severe stutter, um, and they're unsure if the speech disability community is a part of the disabled community. So whether or not they would be able to belong to the disabled community. So I wanted to start with that. Yes, very simple answer, yes. So Maya, like you're here, you're, you're held, you're good. I, I'll say really briefly that, um, you know, because <laughs> of the ways in which we're in this legalistic framework about somebody who's not us, right? Like a doctor or a lawyer or whoever gets to decide whether we count or not as disabled people. And also because sometimes we have to pass as much as possible to survive. There's this idea that like, it is like the number one question in crit community of like, oh, I don't know, am I disabled enough? And I just wanna say that like you being disabled doesn't take disability away from anyone else. It's not a zero sum game. We can all be fucking disabled in many different ways. And it's not taking a spot away from anyone else. Um, it's disability is anyone who doesn't have a normative body or mind. And we can talk about the different ways ableism affects us in our different experiences, but we can all be disabled. And I've also seen some really incredible scholarship in disability studies that writes about um, stuttering and disfluency. So there's, I mean, also, yes, it's a straightforward answer. And there's, of course, precedent and um, sort of some really great theorization and writing around around this as well. Unmute. You had to have somebody do that once, right? Like, hello, you're muted. Um, so I'm now going to jump to a question um, that is sort of more personal for y'all, which asks how, when you are thinking and experimenting about different ways to describe your own disabilities, right? So not just how to sort of live with them or how to talk about them and manage them. How do you give yourself grace? Can you explain more what you mean by that? So this says, when you're experimenting with different ways to describe your own disability, my understanding of this would be if you're thinking about how to how to position yourself sort of publicly and internally as a person with disabled who is, has disabilities, how do you give yourself um, how do you give yourself grace as you perhaps are less of an I'm going to guess I can't tell, but maybe less of a sort of good crip or or sort of not within the right box. Um, but uh, Lucian, if you want to jump in with more details, go for it. Uh, I guess I'll say I kind of took that as grace is like, yeah, that you might get it wrong or something. Um, I guess as a person who has lived with various disabilities my whole life, but not identified with disability 
as a disabled person until quite recently, despite working in disability studies for a very long time. Um, I think for me, I had to give myself time to like really ex like get rid of my own internalized ableism. So I would, I would downplay uh, my disabilities a lot and experiment with words. But I think for me, it's very similar to the way that I like, I've changed the words that I use to describe my sexuality. You know, like we change, God has changed says Octavia Butler, right? Like, and so if, if the grace was a question of like, to allow yourself to get it wrong or allow yourself to be uncomfortable. Like, yeah, you can, you can change the way you talk about your disability and describe your disability to yourself, to other people. It can be different depending on who asks you. Um, all of that is fine. Cause there are some people that don't deserve to know all the things about you. And then there are some people that do. Um, okay, so here is another question. This has got a lot of words in it, so I'm going to try to. Um, so Jules asks, um, how with um, disability justice, respectful, mutual non-charity, mutual aid outside of capitalism, right? Says how with this, um, how do we focus on what needs to be dismantled specifically within sort of the institutional context as we're also focusing on creating all of these sort of alternative mutual aid models? Um, I would probably understand that question as like, do you have like a, a, a how do you make choices about how do you look at these things? Or if we see them all as together, how do you, how do you act? Um, and I'm waiting if Jules wants to be more specific, but. I could go, but I already went. So somebody else <laughs> go. I want Jess Beard to go on this one too, because I think we didn't get enough time to talk about your question, like even for one second. So part of this might be about if you're both working in the streets, right, doing the bed street or how to, how does praxis, right? The, the, the actual things that people are doing in terms of non-sanctioned um, aid structures. Also, someone wants to know how to spell um, the congregational longer, I think it is. Um, so you can drop that in. Um, versus like the point of attempting to dismantle like the imperialist settlerist, settler colonial state. Like how do you put those things in conversation? Uh, okay, okay, maybe I get it, maybe. Um, I'm not sure I do either, but I think you can <laughs> and we're totally good because I think Jules says, I'm not sure, but like, think on <laughs> So just, uh, so as congregation, the word is sangat, it's S-A-N-G-A-T. Um, I, I, I guess I would say that I was thinking about Helen Mikosha, who is like, there has to be, disability justice has to be, or, or um, is always kind of weighing out um, what it means to um, advocate and strive and support, you know, um, dis disabled lives, but also fight state violence at the same time and fight um, mass maiming. And so this is a kind of understanding of, of um, Southern disability studies that resonates in Palestine, which is very much so, there's really no, um, for example, I would say this isn't true across Palestine at all. And, and because of the spatial fragmentation of the West Bank, it's hard to say that anything 
kind of runs across um, because that's how the occupation works. But for example, in the refugee camps that there's um, that there's really a, a fusion around um, lived, you know, uh, lived lives as disabled and also resistance to the occupation. They're kind of one and the same, right? So, um, you know, challenging state violence also means um, articulating. There's there's uh, there's no there's no disabled um, identity or uh, relationship that's not already completely implicated in resistance and anti-imperialist resistance to the occupation. So in that sense, if I'm understanding the question properly, but I'm pretty sure I'm not, in that sense, there's not really a separation out of priorities. They're all folded into each other and they're all lived um, simultaneously. I think you did get at the question, and I think there's a, a number of versions of it in the chat, which is sort of how do you prioritize sort of where to where to show up, right? Um, did anybody else have anything you wanted to jump in around that one? Yeah, Leah. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, what I got out of that question was kind of the tension between do we just do prefigurative mutual aid outside the system at all? stuff with DJ or do we do anything else? And I wanna say that like, it's both and. Um, I, I think that that's something inside DJ movement we've talked about a lot and that there's a lot of complexities around it. Because, and I think that sometimes people who are newer to it are like, oh, DJ means never engaging with the state at all instead, except to dismantle it. And I would say that Olmsted, for example, being refunded, um, funding going to people being able to be in community-based settings or their homes with, you know, care attendants who are paid well, um, you know, that's just like, there's the complete destruction of the state and the empire as we know it. And there's also strategic initiatives that we do in the short term, because, you know, as Subcomandante Marcos said, walking, we ask questions. And walking, we also sometimes make strategic demands of the state. So. I was blown, I mean, speaking of, you know, care being on everyone's lips now in different ways that are often kind of surreal. I was listening to NPR in my car because KEXP was having a bad hour. And I was just hearing about this, like, oh yeah, no, we're gonna fund care economies. President Biden's gonna do that. And I was like, this is really weird. And also when I was hearing about some of the things that might go through, might, if we pushed for it, um, in terms of in-home care workers being paid well, in terms of paid time off, in terms of, you know, really a focus away from putting disabled people into institutional and congregate settings where we die and being like, yeah, you can get your wheelchair. Um, those are demands we can make at the state that can be meaningful, right? Um, I think demanding of the state, some of the things that Stacey did when she co-wrote Bernie Sanders' disability justice platform, which had things like, why don't we make SSDI not just go up to the minimum wage, but be 300% at the minimum wage. That would mean that my friends who've been living on $795 a month for years would be making like, you know, 2,500 a month. People were like, I could buy conditioner. I could get a cavity filled. This would really change my life. Um, and I think that for a lot of people who have disabilities that really need $20,000 pieces of adaptive equipment, they're like, I love mutual aid. And I also really need Medicaid to pay for my wheelchair. So I think we get to do both. And in terms of where do we start, I think start where you and your communities are, start where you have spoons, like start where your heart is calling you to do the work and where you can do the work sustainably. And you don't have to know all that, but just start somewhere. 
Yeah. Can I just say that was the piece that Leah, I really wanted to make sure we said is that like, yes, there's the collective, we both and do it all. And as individuals, we all have like literal body, mind and time limits. And so thinking about, yeah, like your community connections, your skills, um, and like, yeah, where your heart calls you and like supporting the work of other people, but like really relying on everyone to be doing the thing that we are very good at in order to like, like it is possible to do, but you as a single human being who asks the question cannot do everything. So like figure out what you're good at. <laughs> yeah. So we are just about, I was looking at time. We have just a couple of more minutes um, and we have two questions that are related about, um, about, is there, do you have any suggestions for um, somebody's writing from um, about having a psychological disability and not having a lot of resources for talking about how to navigate the stigmas of psychological disabilities? Um, that's a bigger question than can be overtly answered, but I did want to just um, give it space for a second. Um, and I think, I feel like the person, like all the thinking about madness, right? All the thinking about um, neurodiversity, but so mad queer. Yeah. So we've got, um, I'm going to put um, these into the, I can't put them in, but Josh, if you could put in the fireweed collective for Laura and for anybody else, the other people on there who are saying they don't have resources for that and madqueer.org. Um, those are specific requests and I just wanted to, to honor them. Thank you for answering. Thank you for answering those. So we are actually coming to the end of our time. And I would like to just take a minute um, to really ask everybody to just sort of like, just be for a second, wherever you are, um, to be in your, in yourself and whatever it feels like to be in your body mind right now. And to like, think about the cat butts that we got to see wandering in the pink wall. And the, the fact that people showed up in and through all different kinds of distress um, and really um, just how much grace um, and brilliance has been in this space. And I really, really, really just wanna personally say thank you. And thank you for the our two interpreters because man, y'all, we would talk really quick to like all of us and what a what a gift it is for you to do that labor. Um, and thank you. And yes, I see the emoji there. Um, so thank you for running with us. And I um, appreciate everybody here. If you have more questions, you can reach out on Instagram or Facebook. And I just really look forward to these conversations, continuing to reading and talking and hearing all of you again, and just want to say thank you. So thank you so much for being here. And then it's going to like weirdly just turn off and it's going to be super awkward. So I'm going to just stand thank here awkwardly. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thank yes, you. you can all you know, Bye, I think friends. You can unmute and clap for yourselves. <laughs> Yay for ourselves. All right. That's it for this episode on WATV Radio. We appreciate you joining us and listening in. Have any questions about this podcast, any of our guests, or have topics that you'd like for us to explore for future programming? feel free to reach us on our socials. 
On Twitter and Instagram, we're at WATV underscore Oak. And on Facebook, we're at WATV dot Oak.